morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life. My name is Ben. I am the youth director here at One Life. <laughs> Thank you. So normally during this part of the service, I'm actually downstairs. Uh, and we're probably playing a game about now, maybe having some candy, just having a good time before we start learning more about the Bible. So thank you so much for letting me speak and letting me be here at One Life and for um, just letting me be involved with the youth. I've been learning so much and growing and just having a great time, and I really appreciate it. And also, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in the room. Thank you so much for all the time, all the energy, all the physical energy that you've spent on your children. I know that I'm very grateful for my own mother, and I'm also very grateful for you. So first, before we begin with our passage, I would like to just talk about who we are as the people of God. So as the people of God, we are, at this point in time, we are Christians, followers of Christ. But before Christ came to the world, we were Israelites. We followed Yahweh. We still follow him, but we, did not, we were not known as followers of Christ back then. And how did we get the name Israel? It was actually a man by the name of Jacob who had his name changed. Jacob was the son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. Jacob actually means deceiver because Jacob actually manipulated, stole his older brother's inheritance. He stole the birthright. He stole the blessing from their father, Isaac. He was really scared because he had just tricked his older brother, and so he ran off to another land. And he worked for this guy by the name of Laban. I might be pronouncing that wrong. I'm not sure. <laughs> and so for Laban, he worked for him for 20 years, and he ended up marrying two of his daughters. And then eventually he had a falling out with Laban. And so he decided that he needed to return to his homeland. And on the way back, he heard that Esau, his older brother, was coming out to meet him. And he got scared. He was very nervous, rightly so, because he had tricked his brother. So he starts sending camels and goats and sheep and his servants in front of him to, like, sort of suck up to his older brother. He even splits his group into two because he's so nervous that Esau, his older brother, is going to wipe out everyone. So he splits into two so that at least some of them will survive. And then the night before he meets up with Esau, he's by himself out in the wilderness, by himself camping. And then a strange thing occurs. A man comes and it says he wrestled with Jacob. There's a lot of weird stories in the Old Testament, and this is one of them. Nothing is said about the man. It just says a man showed up and wrestled with Jacob until the break of dawn, meaning until the sun rose. And no one, none of them could, they couldn't overcome each other. And so eventually the man touched Jacob's hip socket and dislocated his hip. And then he said, release me. And Jacob said, no, not until you give me your blessing. And the man replied with, your name is no longer Jacob, it is now Israel. Meaning one who has striven with God or one who has wrestled with God. That is our history. That is where we come from. We are those who have wrestled with God. The interesting thing about that name is it doesn't say those who have wrestled with God and won. It also doesn't say the one who has wrestled with God and lost. There's actually no resolution. It's just one to have wrestled with God. This was common throughout Jewish history. Abraham wrestled with God over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. Moses wrestled with God over what would happen to the Israelites when they rebelled against Abraham and God. God wanted to come through and wipe them out with the plague, and Moses stood before God and said, no, aren't you a merciful God, and stood before them. He wrestled. He engaged with God. And then throughout the Psalms, man, 
Sometimes the psalmists are angry at God. They're like, why would you abandon me? Why would you do this to me? We see wrestling throughout the scriptures. So that brings us to our story today. We've been working through Mark the past four weeks. So today I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, if you have your Bibles with you. If not, we also have it on the screen. So Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. If you're like me, when you read this story, you feel super uncomfortable. (laughs) I mean, Jesus called a woman a dog. He refused to heal her. I mean, we don't seem to see this anywhere else in the Gospels. It doesn't really line up with any of our views and our ideals and pictures of who Jesus was. See, this is a story of wrestling in two ways. There's the wrestling that occurs between the Syrophoenician woman and Jesus. And then there's also the wrestling that we experience in our own hearts as we read this. It doesn't really make sense. It causes us to question. It's not easy to read this story. So we're going to delve into the wrestling that this woman partook in. And then we're going to apply the lessons we learn from her to our own life and our own wrestling with this story. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you've invited us to be in relationship with you, to wrestle with you. And I just pray that you'd be with us this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, and uh, that we would grow to know you more and more every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's start out with a little context surrounding Mark. So Mark was most likely written by a guy named John Mark, who was with Peter in Rome. So he got all of his information and stories from Peter, who was with Jesus through his whole ministry. Peter is probably one of the most, if not the most well-known, disciple of Jesus. It was written for the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles are those who are not of the Jewish faith, who have not practiced circumcision, who have not practiced all the Old Testament laws. They believed in Jesus. And they didn't want to have anything to do with all these rituals that the Jews were taking part in. But the Jews wanted them to be a part of it. So you see throughout Paul's epistles this this wrestling between the Jewish Old Testament laws and the new followers of Christ. So So Mark is writing this to a mixed audience. And you'll see in his Gospels, it's void of any like Christianese, as we'd call it. It's like if you read Matthew, you have a lot of Old Testament prophecies, and then Jesus does something to fulfill it. There's not much of that in Mark. It's pretty simple. It's straightforward. It's written for those who would not have any background in Judaism. And we see throughout Mark that Jesus is traveling from one side of the sea, that's predominantly Jewish, to another side of the sea, that's predominantly Gentile. It's almost as though Jesus is weaving unity between the two groups with every crossing of the sea. And Mark really seems 
to hammer in on that point. He always is talking about Jesus going from one side to the other. His first miracle, Jesus' first miracle, on the Gentile side was actually with this man who had a legion of demons inside him. We, were, we heard about this story two weeks ago from Greg. This man had a legion of demons, and Jesus cast it out and sent it into a herd of pigs that then died. Then he told the man, this is my favorite part, he said, go back to your home, go back to your family and friends, and tell them what God has done. Now, that seems normal, but he was telling a Gentile, someone who wasn't supposed to have any part in the Jewish faith, to go home and tell his friends and families, who were all Gentiles as well, what God had done for him. And then it says the man went home to the Decapolis, which is a group of 10 Greek cities in that area that was definitely Gentile, and he told everyone what Jesus had done for him. We're also told in Matthew, before this story, that Jesus healed a Roman centurion, once again, another Gentile. And so you see, there was precedent. This isn't the first encounter Jesus had had with a Gentile. So I'm sure this woman had heard these stories. She lived in the area where the man with the legion of demons had been healed was from. So maybe she'd even heard from him. Maybe as he was walking through the Decapolis saying, look what Jesus did for me, maybe she was one of the bystanders. I'm sure she was immediately filled with hope. Like, wait, this Jewish rabbi healed this Gentile man. This great man went to an outsider. She was probably filled with hope. And so immediately when she heard that Jesus was in the area, it says Jesus entered the house and then immediately she was there. She fell down at his feet. That means she bowed down before him. And then she proceeded to beg, Jesus, heal my daughter. I think we forget how bold she was in this instance. We get so used to how crazy it was that Jesus went out amongst the Gentiles and the supposed unclean that we sort of normalize it. But in reality, the fact that Jesus would associate with a Gentile was crazy. A nominal Jew wouldn't even do that. And here he was a great rabbi. And then also, she was a woman, which in that time, in that culture, was something that was looked down upon, unfortunately. And yet, he associated with her, an outsider above all other outsiders. But also, she was bold, because she, sure, she had to have known those things about Jesus, about Jewish beliefs, and yet she still went to him. She didn't hold back. She went before him. And for her bold faith, she actually got refused. Jesus said no, and called her a dog. Now, calling a dog was actually just calling somebody unclean. You see, in Jewish rituals, you would, if you touched a dog, then you had to do, perform different cleaning rituals, wash your hands, your body, then maybe do some sacrifices and some prayers, and then you would have uh, cleansed yourself of that dirtiness that was the dog. So by calling her dog, he was really calling her a sinner. But what did she do? She said, yes, Lord. And then she engaged him. And for her faith, Jesus healed her daughter. But she didn't leave that counter the same person. She's completely changed. She's a new woman. <laughs> she came face to face with the sin in her own life. With the, to, came face to face with the impurities. The things in her life that were contrary to God's nature. And yet, she was also emboldened. Because even though she had those aspects to her character, God still allowed her to come before him and give him a witty retort, really. <laughs> he still allowed her to engage with him, to wrestle with him. This presents us with one of the great paradoxes of God. He is great. He is mighty. He's omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he knows everything. 
He is pure. He is holy. And yet, he's calling us, human beings who live for 70 years and him who's lived for eternity, he's calling us to engage with him, to wrestle with him, to bring our worries before him. It doesn't really make any sense. But that's the paradox that's presented in this story. It's pretty encouraging because it seems almost as though we see a human being sway the divine. But it still causes some serious questions and struggles in our own lives. Was Jesus a racist? Why didn't he heal her? Did he sin here? I think in order to fully understand it, we need a little more context. As many of you know, I grew up in Africa pretty much my whole life. In Africa, we love Proverbs and stories to illustrate points. One proverb I heard many, many times growing up from my father was this Ghanaian proverb. And it says, The stranger's eyes are wide open, but he sees nothing. The stranger's eyes are wide open, but he sees nothing. This means that we go into a situation where our our eyes are wide open because we want to learn everything. We want to learn everything we can, and then we start applying it right away. We're like, oh, now I know these few things, I know everything. How many times do we do that in our, whenever we go into another culture or just with our, even our schoolwork or anything in life, even in our Bible reading? I love reading the Bible, but I think we always must remember that in our readings, we are strangers in a land 2,000 years ago with our eyes wide open amongst a culture that is completely different than ours, And in the end, we don't understand everything. For example, in the Gospels, we see Jesus answer so many questions by either not answering and changing the subject or telling a parable, a story. If you came up to me and asked me a question and I started telling you a parable or a story, you'd be like, what in the world? What is this guy doing? You know, we function very directly in our culture. What we say is what we mean. And we want other people to talk to us that way as well. In Africa, though, in many countries in Africa, don't want to make a blanket statement, but typically indirect talk is highly valued. In fact, being direct can almost be seen as rude. One time, a few years ago, I was living in this country as a missionary that was completely closed, meaning no missionaries were allowed there. It was illegal to proselytize. And so we had a platform. So we had to be there for another reason, but in reality, we were there as missionaries. And... This guy came up to me, we'll call him Abdi, and he was a friend of mine, and then one time he showed up at the house, and he came in, and I gave him some coffee, some tea, and we just talked about random things, politics, both local and international, and then he started talking about phones, somehow we got on the conversation of phones, and he was like, yeah, my uh, cousin works for the phone company, he starts laughing, he's like, you know what happened the other day, is uh, somebody was talking on the phone, and it got recorded, and they found out that this guy was doing something that was haram which means illegal, forbidden in Islam, in Arabic. He's like, then they caught him and he got punished. I was like, oh, wow. And then he sort of looked at me, laughed a little. Then after a few minutes, he left. And I was like, okay. Now, what I didn't tell you is that this guy was actually worked for security for the government. He was in what we'd call like the FBI here. What he was really doing was he was indirectly telling me to be careful on the phone because they were listening that they knew what we were up to, and that I need to be more careful with my conversations. He was being very indirect, but he was also helping me. He was my friend. In our Bible reading, we have to keep these two tensions in mind. God uses the Bible to teach us, to edify us, to encourage us, to convict us. 
and we should always strive to further understand. But we always have to remember as well that we can't fully understand. So keeping these two tensions in mind, how can we apply this story to our own wrestling? What can we learn from this to further our own relationship with God? I think the first thing is to realize that God is calling us into relationship with him. But sometimes I don't think we, t- we take that far enough. We think that relationship with God means giving thanks to him, worshiping him, which is great. And also, maybe if we have struggles, bring them before him. We need something, we bring it before him. But how many of our relationships, our deep relationships, are only like that? As many of you know, I'm engaged right now. I'm getting married in two months, or two and a half months. <laughs> I'm very excited. <laughs> thanks. And so Lauren, my fiance, and I have been really learning communication. I've been learning that if I have grievances with Lauren, if she's done something that's upset me, I need to bring it to her. I can't let it fester inside me. And same with Lauren. If she has something against me, something that I did, she needs to bring it before me, and I need to be able to listen and hear. Healthy conflict is the bedrock of any good relationship. But why is it we think that we have our relationship with God in a different manner? Why do we think that we can't bring our anger, our doubts, our fears before God? Because I think that's what he's calling us to do. And once again, this brings us back to the paradox we talked about before. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, pure, holy, and yet he still invites us to bring our qualms with him before him. Once again, it doesn't really make sense. But I think this is what we're given. This is the picture and ideal that we should strive for. So how can we learn to approach this wrestling correctly? First, I'd like to say is, why did this woman approach? She approached because she'd heard about it from other people. She'd probably talked to friends and family. Maybe some have been like, hey, you should go to this guy named Jesus. He might help you out. Having community is so important. That's why we come to church on Sundays. That's why we're involved in core groups. Core groups are a great time to bring our struggles with God before friends and talk about it and wrestle together. The second thing is, Jesus came to her area, but he didn't come to her. She actually came to him in the end. God is there. We just need to approach him. I think one of the dangers of, uh, of the community aspect we just talked about is sometimes we forget to actually go to God. We need to be built up in those situations and share with other people, but we can't ever let it take the place of actually coming before God ourselves. We don't need a certain prayer, a certain book, or a certain Bible reading to have a relationship with God. He's just calling us to go before him. The third thing I noticed about this woman is she was so bold. Talked about before, I mean, she was going very countercultural in this. She was incredibly bold. The fourth thing, and to me this is the one that sticks out to me most, is she was so humble. She fell at his feet and begged. She showed us bold humility. But what is humility? Before getting too entrenched in this complex Christian virtue, I I just want to point out that humility isn't, isn't the opposite of pride and arrogance. I think sometimes we think that. I think the opposite of pride and arrogance is self-depreciation. Humility is in the middle. It's knowing who we are truly. So, for example, I've been learning the piano the past few months, and I started from the very beginning, <laughs> and it's been really fun. But if I stood up here and said, yeah, I'm learning the piano faster than any human being ever. I'm learning it so well. I'm so good. 
you'd be like, okay, that guy's full of it, you know? Like, that's really arrogant of me. But then if I stood up here and said, oh, I'm the worst piano player ever to set foot on earth. I'm so bad at it. That's false humility. That's self-depreciation. The truth is, I'm all right. I'm learning. It's been slow going, but I am progressing, and I hope to be better in a few years. You see, humility is knowing who we are in relation to God and man. It's seeing us for who we truly are. Augustine of Hippo said this, human, know that you are human. Your whole humility is to know yourself. Knowing ourselves truly is what it means to be humble. So when the Syrophoenician woman asked Jesus to heal her daughter, and Jesus told her that he had come first for the Jews and that she was a dog, she was faced with her humanity. I know if I ever went to somebody and asked for help and they insulted me and rejected me, I would probably cut the losses, take whatever pride I had left, and ran away. (laughs) But she didn't do that. She actually pressed on. I mean, dogs were considered so unclean like we talked about. They were considered something that would make cause sin in your life to be near it. And what did she say? She said, yes, I do have sin in my life. Yes, I'm not pure like you. And yet, I'm still coming before you. I'm moving past that and coming into your presence. And for her bold humility, Jesus healed her daughter. But in reading the story, I kept on getting caught up on how he called her dog. I was always like, man, if Jesus could have just not called her her dog, the story would be a lot easier to interpret. (laughs) But he did. I kept on saying, man, nowhere else in the New Testament does Jesus call somebody a dog. Nowhere else in the New Testament does Jesus sound like this to somebody. Then I realized in my Bible reading the other day, that's definitely not true. In all of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, he called them names. Let me give you some examples. He said, fools. He called them hypocrites. He called them blind guides. He called them vipers, serpents, a generation of vipers, a brood of vipers. He said to one, you are of your father, the devil. My favorite one is he called some unmarked tombs. Tombs were considered very clean and to be near one, or very unclean. And to be near one was to be defiled. And he was saying you're unmarked, meaning the Jews that are surrounding themselves by you are becoming dirty just by being in your presence, but they don't know it. Man, he went to town on the Pharisees. But the Pharisees didn't usually say, yes, Lord, that's true. No, they always fought back. They always said, no, 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 and started arguing with him and attempting to wrestle, but they never came out changed because they refused to own the negative aspects of who they were. See, this woman is an example of humility in our lives. She said, yes, Lord. She knew she wasn't perfect. She knew she didn't have all the answers. In our wrestling and engaging with Jesus, I think the most important aspect to remember is to be bold and yet humble. To not think of ourselves as more or less than we truly are, yet to still boldly approach the throne of grace in all humility. As I've wrestled and contemplated this story, I'm still not satisfied with it, to be honest. I've learned a lot, yet it still doesn't make sense. As we talked about at the beginning, Mark wrote this for Jews and Gentiles. So my question was like, why would he include this story if he was trying to appeal to Gentiles? Also, why would Jesus say this in the first place? This poor mother. Why couldn't he have just healed her right away? 
Some people say that Jesus was testing her faith. It's possible. I find that a bit difficult to believe personally. Some people say that Jesus' humanity had racism and animosity in it towards the Gentiles and he had to overcome it. I don't believe that either because he had already healed Gentiles and that's not the picture of Jesus that I see in the Gospels. Some people say he was quoting a common proverb of the time and she finished the proverb. Some people say that this was actually a lesson for the Gentiles, sorry, for the disciples. (laughs) The disciples were probably around Jesus when they saw this and it was a lesson for them on how to overcome the bigotry within themselves. Or maybe this story is left unexplained for a reason. Maybe it's just an invitation to wrestle. I know sometimes we're expected to come here and tell you the answer, but I'm not going to, mostly because I don't know. My friend told me the other day that a preacher shouldn't attempt to clarify the gospel, but should always strive to further mystify it. He said this because it's in the mystery that we better understand God. See, mystery invites us to investigate. Mystery causes wonder and excitement. Mystery does not allow for complacency. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. See, God is mysterious. Part of following him is recognizing that we can't understand him fully. And yet we've still been called to try to understand him fully, (laughs) to wrestle with him. At this time, I'd like to invite the worship team and prayer team to come back up. We're going to end with a song as we think about this story. The prayer team is here for you if you'd like some prayer. And while we're waiting for them to get set up, it'd be great if you could open up your bulletin. You'll see a blank side behind the connection card. There's a blank piece of paper. And there's some questions up on the screen, we'd like for you to contemplate, to think about. They're this. What did you hear? These are questions we've been thinking about throughout the Gospel of Mark the past four or five weeks. What is your response? Before we start on that, though, I'd like to end with a closing thought. You know, we never really answered the question about what happened in the story. There are many things that could have happened, and we probably won't ever fully understand it. But I do know that this mysterious, paradoxical God is calling us to wrestle with him and not grow complacent in our relationship with him. We're not supposed to bring our problems to him the way the Pharisees did, in arrogance. You know, there's two times in the Gospels that Jesus said somebody had great faith. One was a Syrophoenician woman, and that's actually in the Matthew account. The story is said in Mark and Matthew. In Matthew, it ends with Jesus saying, Oh, great is your faith, woman. The second time is the Roman centurion. Both of them Gentiles, both of them outsiders, both of them bold and humble. So my question for you is, maybe faith is in the engaging with Jesus. Maybe faith is the wrestling with him in a bold and yet humble manner. So as we sing this song, as we contemplate this story, what worries, what anger, what difficulties are you going to bring to Jesus? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this story that really just causes awe and wonder in my mind and also wrestling and confusion. Thank you so much for teaching me a 
for teaching us that you are great and that you love us and you care for us. Pray that you just be with us as we think about this and that you would speak and that your Holy Spirit would encourage us and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name.